From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The world's changing. And what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? People are using their name and likeness to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies. In order to turn the organization around, we had to turn it around not only just on the baseball operations side, but on the business operations side. Football and any other sport is very difficult, but I like to broaden my horizons and be able to expand sports. You need to be consumed live. And that's a big competitive advantage for intellectual property holders of sports content in the media landscape. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And you're listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. We get together a few times a week, talk about the biggest stories in sports, talk to some of the biggest names. Today, we've got a ton to talk about, Lynch. It was one of these weekends yeah. where I feel like there were a lot of threads to pull, a lot of storylines emerging across all kinds of sports. Uh, we're going to start, uh, you know, dealer's choice here. Got to start down in the ATL. Um, I want to talk about Julio Jones in a second. But first, the Hawks, Trey Young. Yeah. It's not just an MSG thing. Apparently, uh, his his magic works in Philadelphia as well, at least in game one. This is one of the breakout stories of the of the NBA playoffs so far, I, I think. Well, historically, if you look at teams that make great runs in the playoffs, there are teams that are usually just sleepers in December and January and early February. Then all of a sudden around late March and right into April, they just sort of start playing great basketball. And that's what the Hawks have done. I mean, they, they took out the Knickerbockers in five games, and right now they're going against the mighty 76ers, who still you know, had the, had the number one seed, but still haven't proven to anybody that they're worthy of any type of respect at all. And that's the way the Atlanta Hawks are treating them. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to watch. I mean, and you know, I'm an Atlanta guy. I follow this team very closely. I've, I've looked into, you know, not just what they are doing on the court, but off the court with a lot of their um, involvement in the Georgia elections and polling places and turning State Farm Arena, where the games will move later this week into a, a polling place. But you know, the from a storyline perspective, if you're thinking about it from the NBA's perspective and knowing that good stories bring in viewers and attention, you know, this is a playoffs where the ratings are not great. That, and if you go through the weekend setting aside my excitement uh, about the Hawks and folks down in Atlanta, it's actually not a, a great storyline so far if you think about star power drawing viewers, right? LeBron's out. Steph Curry's out, and now Luca's out with the Mavericks going down to the Clippers in a seven-game first-round series. That's not great, and so in some ways, more pressure on Trey Young yeah. and the Hawks to perform because they need something to, to rally around. 
Well, they do. And, and the you know, if you look at the ratings, and you can star power is number one because the NBA is the one league where star power counts. But also look at some of the major markets: the Lakers, out, Los Angeles, yep. Boston, the Celtics, New York, the Knicks, Chicago with the Bulls, Washington with the Wizards, San Francisco out of, of the playoffs right now. So then you're right. You need someone like a Trey Young to be like a story, like a Jeremy Lin was years ago. Right. I said, wow, where'd this guy come from? This guy's unstoppable. He's like, I, I got to watch him. Let's make. When's Atlanta playing next? And he's he's a approaching that territory. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, one of these things when you think about New York and and we had a, a good time catching up last week with John Abamondi, the president of the essentially the CEO of the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets. He's he's the CEO of the company that that owns the Nets and Barclays Arena and a number of other um, basketball related franchises uh, including the New York Liberty. You know, Brooklyn is still in it, although James Harden is hurt. And so you wonder how that's going to play out in this series that they have against the Bucks. Uh, I'm, you know, this is the one, you know, so there's one team left <laughs> from the New York area <laughs> and one team left from the Los Angeles area. I'm not sure people would have predicted uh, necessarily, certainly at the beginning of the season, that the Clippers would be the LA team that that's still around. So we'll see where where this goes. They're down to eight, and um, I mean it's also kind of amazing to think about. We're not going to see the NBA Finals this year till literally July. It's going to be July before we're we're looking at um, that that final series. So a lot of time to come. Uh, shifting, we'll we'll come back to Atlanta in a second, but staying with basketball, we didn't get a chance uh, last week, Lynchy, to talk much at all about Coach K, um, Mike Krzyzewski, stepping down after this season at Duke University, decades at the helm there, uh, you know, arguably in in the present day, probably the best known um, college coach, mm-hmm. certainly one who can, uh, the only one who, who can be distilled down to a single letter. You know, you've watched his his rise, his success, what do you think he meant to to the game of college basketball? Because it feels like he was one of the great elevators in many ways. I think credibility is the number yeah, one thing with Coach Krzyzewski. Um, you know, it, it's often re- college basketball and college, big-time college sports are often referred to as a cesspool. And you don't think of that when you think of Mike Krzyzewski. You think of guys coming there and doing what's best for them, whether it's play for a year and go to the NBA or stay for four years and get your degree. But good values, good sportsmanship, and strict discipline. That comes, of course, from Coach K, who went to West Point and then coached at West Point and brought those values down to Duke and has instilled them among his players over the years. Yeah, you know, it's it's been interesting to read the kind of postmortems, as it were, of, of his career, you know, a little early because he's got um, another year to play, and, and who knows? I mean, they've got a talented team, so they could make a, a deep run. They did not make the NCAA tournament this year, and, and Coach K was very clear about saying, you know, this isn't about the changing game. This is about decisions mm-hmm. for my family. He's in his 70s. I get it. Um, but the game has changed, uh, certainly since he started. And one of the things that I found so interesting in terms of kind of the business of sports, Lynchy, was this notion that he was not successful early on. He had a oh. terrible first uh, three seasons <laughs> at Duke and, and really thought he was going to get fired. And you do wonder in this day and age if a Coach K would, would survive those first few years at a big-time uh, college basketball program. 
He was 38 and 47 in his first three seasons, and he feared for his life. But his athletic director, Tom Butters, gave him complete confidence and said, I am supporting you. And he was playing in a tough league. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, he's playing, you know, this is a tough league, the ACC, uh, with a lot of great teams. I mean, the, the Tar Heels ruled at the time. Now, Bill Foster had a great team when he had Spinarkle and those guys uh, before Krzyzewski, but he had to work his way back. Um, different academic standards from some of the other teams in the Atlantic Coast Conference, and he finally built up the program, and again, credibility. And it all comes down where, you, where the moms and dads want to send their son, yeah. and who they want to have as their guardian and their mentor for the next four years. And obviously, the comfort level with Coach K was above the charts. Yeah, yeah, and and obviously built the the brand of Duke, which is a phenomenal school, of course. Um, but Duke basketball, you know, really became synonymous with with high level college basketball, and you know, constantly uh, at the top of the table, um, as it were. Uh, one interesting conversation coming up this week. I'm going to catch up with Nina King. She is the new athletic director, so obviously she had a hand uh, yep. in all the decision making around this. Going to catch up with her later this week, so. We'll play a portion of that on our weekend show um, coming up later this week. All right, back to Atlanta for a second. Let's shift okay. to uh, National Football League. Julio Jones, not going to mm. be a Falcon anymore, headed a little bit north to the Tennessee Titans. What do you make of this deal? This this was the, the deal, the trade, um, that probably had the most tongues wagging, aside from the Aaron Rodgers drama, which hasn't resulted in a trade yet. You know, this was this was very dramatic over the, uh, the course of the last week or so, Lynching. It was, and a lot of people up here in New England were salivating over the thought of getting Julio Jones in a Patriots uniform yeah. and maybe have him working with Mac Jones, the Jones boys, uh, they would have been calling them. But he goes to uh, a former Patriot, Mike Vrabel's uh, Tennessee Titans. And every time I look at a big name that is, is traded to another team, there are two needles I, I pay attention to that are moving up or down. One is uh, season ticket sales, and the other is jersey sales hmm. so julio jones apparently is going to get to keep his number 11 because aj brown has graciously agreed to give it to him now aj wanted to wear number one but he couldn't do that because warren moon's number one has been retired by the wow. franchise so <laughs> so we'll have to look at the jersey sales and so it may be a, a twofer here it may yeah. be we wear number 11 for julio jones in tennessee and you wear whatever the new number is for aj brown yeah yeah, that'll it'll be interesting to see how he catches on in Tennessee. I mean, this was a broken marriage for sure, uh, played out publicly, and and for those who who didn't see it, it's worse. You know, you talk about the media influence on the business of sports. Um, Shannon Sharp, who's very close to Julio Jones, you know, calls him on his cell phone on the air um, last week and has a conversation that certainly. I don't know if it accelerated the process, but it certainly brought it out very much into the open. There are some questions that still haven't totally been answered as to whether Julio, who was clearly driving in his car at that moment, knew that he was live on television, but uh, definitely went viral with him saying, like, I'm out of Atlanta. Like, that that question is um, – that question yeah. has been answered. It, it There was some speculation he could go to the Cowboys at that moment. That obviously – um, didn't happen. There were some reports that maybe he would go to the Seahawks. You know, for Atlanta, if you think about the business decision here, Lynchy, mm -hmm. I mean, I talked with a lot of Atlanta fans, some of whom are in my family, uh, over the weekend about this. And, you know, there is some concern if you're an Atlanta fan that this is a, you know, literally and figuratively sort of a franchise player in many ways. Um, 
and yet, uh, probably if you're going to keep him one more year, not not worth it because I. And I'll say this, you know, just realistically, Falcons aren't going to make it. They're they are very very unlikely to make a, a Super Bowl run uh, this year. They need to rebuild, and so getting a couple of pretty good draft picks is probably from an investment perspective the best thing you can do. If you're in a rebuild mode, they've got a new coach in Arthur Smith, and they need to make some changes. And and one of the big questions, of course, is going to be how long, uh, speaking of uh, Boston area stars, uh, the former BC standout Matt Ryan uh, last down there in Atlanta. I mean, he's coming to the end. We don't know how many years he's got left, but they did not draft Justin Fields, who I think many people wanted uh, yep. them to do the Falcons. But, um, you know, it does feel like I, I read a lot over the weekend that basically said this was the right business decision if you're Arthur Blank. Well, and by waiting till June 1st, they do get a great deal of salary cap relief with Julio Jones. Yeah. Uh, he was going to cost them a, over $23 million against the cap coming this year. So they get a little bit of relief there to, to maybe retain some players uh, that might be in the final year of their contract. But, uh, Many of the players on this team are going to have to restructure their contracts. And, you know, they did not do a good job with the salary cap. And Matty Ice has got, now he's got one less weapon to, to throw to down there in Atlanta. Uh, we all, you know, follow him very closely up here in Boston, obviously. And he had that uh, great run where he went to the Super Bowl against the Patriots. But, um, yeah, I, I think when you, you've got Tom Brady in your division down there, um, yeah. I don't think you're. I don't think you're going to win the division this year. I hate to break it to you, Jason. I think you are probably right. Yeah, it, uh, <laughs> it is. It is a tough. It is a tough road there uh, in the in the NFC South. Now there is some excitement um, around uh, Kyle Pitts, the tight end that the Falcons drafted, and and yep. and again that comes down. So that was their their top pick, the number four overall pick. Again, they did not uh, draft a, a quarterback and. Again, when you think about the business of building a roster, and, and this is what an observer said to me over the weekend, you know, you're you're long Kyle Pitts at, at, at this point. You know, you, yeah. he becomes essentially, you know, will be will he be as impactful a, a player as, as Julio Jones has been? Maybe, um, but you know, he's obviously younger. Um, you know, Julio certainly had s- some issues with injuries and, and whatnot, so. Um, a rebuild for sure, but you know, just hearkening back a little bit to the top of the conversation, Atlanta Hawks were in a rebuild uh, for some time, mm-hmm. and and now you know making a, a nice little run in in their uh, in their sport, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of excitement in Atlanta around that. Uh, let's head across the pond if we can to sure. Paris and Roland Garros, where they are bereft of uh, superstars increasingly, uh, Lynchy. Roger Federer taking himself out of the tournament uh, after the fourth round. Serena Williams losing uh, her match. So Federer out, Serena out, Naomi Osaka, of course, uh, retiring from the tournament, citing some mental health issues that were spurred by her, um, or sort of brought to the fore, I should say, by her refusal to participate in in the press conference and, and the press availabilities. If you are a programmer, if you are a producer of a tournament, this is not good news for you, ha- having the biggest stars uh, exit stage left. Yeah, and they've got a problem over there, too, with, with COVID. They have restricted um, 
attendance and for many of their matches so and they also um have a curfew for, uh, i think it's nine o'clock at night that nobody mm -hmm. so and that, i think federer's last match went till like one o'clock in the morning but he says he's just listening to his body he's coming off two knee operations and uh, uh, presumably he's getting ready for wimbledon he's, he's resting right now but you know the end is near for a 40 year old in, in this sport he's been a great champion over the years he's won a ton of money uh, and he's been one of the one of the great gracious uh, champions that hasn't let in everything he's accomplished go to his head. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Yeah. Well, and, you know, for Serena's part, you know, she's still chasing that that elusive next uh, Grand Slam, hasn't been able to, to match that record yet. And, um, you know, her first majors win, 1999. I mean, just shows the span. It's just incredible. Um, so obviously, you know, a lot of attention will be paid to Wimbledon. And then, uh, you know, closer to home here, a lot of attention pay, played in the U.S. Open. You know, for Naomi's part, one of the big next questions is going to be whether she plays in and how she plays mm -hmm. in the Olympics, which are in her home country of Japan, scheduled to be in her home country of Japan. There's been speculation that she could be the flag bearer at the opening ceremonies. The press availability I was reading this morning is a little bit different there. It's sort of this mixed area, mixed media uh, area. So it's not the, the, the same rhythm and, you know, sitting behind a, a table on a, de uh, on a dais and, and fielding questions unless you are a medal winner, apparently. So um, we'll see. I mean, there, there are a lot of discussions about athletes and media and social media and, and how that all um, how that all plays together. Uh, speaking of tennis, uh, one deal mm -hmm. that I saw this morning that you and I were talking about a little bit before we came on air is um, CVC Capital Partners. This is going back to my private equity days. Uh, this has been a very active investment firm in the sports world. They bought very, bought and sold very successfully Formula One. I believe there have been reports that they made 10 times their money um, buying and selling Formula One. So they're interested oh. in pursuing other sports. They apparently, Lynchy, are in advance talks. This is according to Sky Sports on a deal to merge the women's tour and the men's tour in tennis. If you talk to people in the world of tennis, and I'm sure you've heard this many times over the years, this is a long time coming. It would really help the sport in many ways. Uh, obviously, these these tours come together for all the majors, but otherwise, they're playing in different places at different times, and the the rules are a little bit different, and compensation, and, and all of those things. Uh, to me, from from a pure business perspective, I think this is the I think this is the right thing to do. Don't you? Without question, I mean, how many governing bodies are there in tennis right now? At least a half a dozen, right? The ATP, the WTA, the International Tennis Federation, every Grand Slam has its own 
Federation. And speaking of Federer, Federer is very much in favor of this and has been for a long time. And you would think a guy like that would say, look, I don't want to be merged. I'm, I'm, I'm doing great on my own. But he, he thinks it's for, for the greater good of the sport. He thinks it's the right thing to do. Um, you'll have uh, one platform where you can watch uh, men's and women's tennis rather than trying to figure out, okay, where's the women's tour this week? Where's the right. men's tour this week? Um, more prize money. Um, the, the digital platform uh, going worldwide, uh, streaming. Um, I think it's a great idea. Obviously, uh, it would not be a good idea for the PGA and LPGA, the NBA and the WNBA, but I think for the ATP and the WTA, this is a win-win, especially with the uh, CVC Capital Partners uh, coming back, uh, coming in as the driving force. Yeah, I mean, what's what's fascinating to me about, about this, too, and, and I've been doing a little bit of, of work on this, is this notion that, you know, tennis and, and Billie Jean King obviously gets a huge amount of credit for this, you know, tennis has come the closest of, of any major sport where you have both men and women competing at a, a high professional level in terms of something resembling parity uh, in terms of compensation. And so you would hope that this would some if you believe in, in pay <clears throat> equality, you you would hope that this would cement that, that this would make it that much easier because it would, there would just be consistency across the entire professional league that, that would include uh, both the men's game and, and the women's game. You know, it also comes, and, and this echoes back to, to what we were talking about with, with Federer and Serena and others, and when you think about, especially in the men's game, Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal – they are not long for this tour. I mean, they will yeah. continue to make lots of money on, on their own and in all sorts of different ways through sponsorships and and their other business interests. But, um, you know, tennis on the men's side especially needs a shot in the arm. They need another group of players to come along. There is a, a nice crop of, of female players who, who are coming along. But the more that they can do to sort of shore up the business side uh, would seem to – would seem to be uh, really important. All right, uh, let's round out the conversation by talking about this fight, quote unquote. <laughs> I'm doing air quotes uh, that happened yesterday on, on Sunday uh, here between uh, the the Mayweather Paul uh, bout. Um, not an official fight. There was no winner declared. Uh, there was a referee, but this was not a sanctioned event. This was purely. Um, it's not a publicity stunt necessarily, and yet. It kind of was uh, good, bad, indifferent. What, what what do you make of this for the sport of of, of boxing and fighting? I'm indifferent to it. I'm, I'm a big boxing fan and have been for a long, long time. This was nothing more than a, a marketing ploy yeah. right here to try to get some pay-per-view people to try to get the the, the, the Paul Logan's generation to watch uh, watch him fight. But this you know this guy weighs 190 pounds and yeah. Merriweather's you know. Was he 45 years old, 44 years old, I think, right now? And he has no business fighting a guy like this. And there were no judges, uh, no official, nobody could win, nobody could lose, but knockouts were legal. And uh, he, he, Logan landed, he was eight rounds, he lasted, so he considers that a win. Yeah. I, I'm very indifferent to it. I hate to say it. Um, boxing is, I don't want to say a dead sport, but it's on life support. It is struggling for sure, and and I think you know I was talking to some folks about this toward the end of last week, leading up to this fight, and and I feel like there there are a couple camps. You know, one is that this is there there are a couple sort of 
opposite, you know, sort of polar opposite camps. One is this is horrible for the sport, you know, that it sort of makes a mockery of it. And, <laughs> you know, this is the sweet science. This is, you know, there's so much history, as you know, far better than I um, in the sport of, of boxing and some of the iconic athletes of the past several generations have come through um, the world of boxing. There's the other side of it that basically says, look, anything that exposes this particular sport in any form to a broader, younger audience is ultimately good for business and, and good for for the future of the sport. I mean, certainly Floyd Mayweather, he essentially made that case that this put him in front of basically Logan Paul's social media fueled audience, a much younger audience who, you know, now probably knows who Floyd Mayweather is and, and may not have um, before. I don't know. I mean, there, there's something a little bit circusy <laughs> to, yeah. to use a non-word uh, about this for me at least. And I think we'll wait to see exactly how much money was generated? I mean, certainly these guys walked out with with a nice uh, a nice amount of dough, um, but but what it ultimately means for the sport. One interesting side note th- that I was reading about is that apparently Showtime, which had the pay per view rights, you know, both streaming and and on um, you know video on demand, uh, ran into some issues, and so there were some glitches with, with people getting to it. So that's not great. That's not great for Showtime, and it's also not great. Um, you know, for for fans who who wanted to to pay the fifty bucks to to get the to get the fight and and having those sorts of, sorts of troubles, we've talked a lot about how people are going to consume sports going forward, and streamers obviously are are um, are uh, are resurgent. I was going to say resurgent, insurgent <laughs> to some extent uh, in terms of uh, being the the destination. But uh, I don't know. I mean, I I'm rather indifferent as well. I never. To be honest, and even though it's kind of my job to to watch things like this, I, I never even I, I it never crossed my I, mind to. to I saw it. I, I I never clicked on it. You know, yeah. I, I a week ago yesterday on Sunday, I spoke at uh, Marvin Hagler's memorial service down wow. at uh, at Rocky Marciano Stadium in Brockton. Thomas the Hitman Hearns showed up unannounced, which was a huge surprise and a huge lift, and he got a great ovation. But I'm there with uh, Stephen A. Smith spoke. Um, Al Bernstein was there, and a bunch of boxing writers were there, and were sitting around and said, "Can anyone name the middleweight champion of the world?" Yeah, no one could say. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? And there was a dispute between, well, it's either Tyson Fury or Anthony Joshua. And it was it, it didn't just roll off everybody's lips. And these are people who have been lifelong boxing people. Right. And I right. think that just that told me a ton about the state of boxing. Why do you think it is? I mean, knowing it knowing the, the business the way you do, what what happened? Personalities, without question. Uh, when Hagler was fighting, the middleweight or the welterweight was Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas Hearns, Roberto Duran, Marvin Hagler, and they 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 sustained it for a decade or more. I mean, uh, Ray Leonard came off the '76 Olympics and he fought Hagler in 1987, and it was a huge fight. The heavyweight, of course, you know, you had Ali, you had Frazier, then you had Tyson, Evander right. Holyfield, Larry Holmes, and who are these people now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean it, it certainly has fallen off. I mean, I I definitely grew up in the in the Tyson Holyfield generation and I mean remember that very well and you know these were 
controversial figures in, in some ways, certainly in the case of Mike Tyson, who, who's still around in some form or fashion and <laughs> finds his way into, into popular culture um, here and there. But you're right. They were very much embedded in in a culture that was well beyond the sports world. And, you know, you would have been as, as likely to see them on television or on the cover of a, mag- a non-sports magazine in, in many ways. I mean, obviously, Ali stands head and shoulders above um, – anyone in that regard in, in terms of his social activism and, and whatnot. But, you know, Tyson, I think, in, in many ways stands, for me at least, as as the last boxer who truly captured the public's imagination and who you would say, you know what, we're going to get the Tyson fight. You know, we're going to watch the Tyson fight. Everybody come over. And even the even folks who, who wouldn't necessarily be following it, you know, knew who Mike Tyson was. But I mean, that that's actually a, that's a crazy story to say that the people whose business it is to know these <laughs> things were like, mm, can I Google it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, that we were all standing there with like with our with our jaws down, scratching yeah. our heads, and you know it, 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 it's hard to believe we would we could rattle off probably the top five in in, in five different weight divisions twenty years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know what? When one thing, getting back to this tennis thing with all the different tennis federations with the ATP, WTA, international, blah 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 blah. It reminds me so much of of, of boxing when boxing went to the WBA, the WBO, yeah. the IBF, and you know we used to joke and said it's the IBEW, uh, you know AFLCIO champion of the world <laughs> right right and um you know let's just have one federation like in boxing let's have one in golf and two sports that really need a boost in the arm in attendance uh in investment in advertising and in marketing and let's 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 make boxing and tennis great again well i will tell you that just to round this out i mean there there are two abbreviations that in many ways i think and i'd be interested in your take on this have probably been largely responsible for the decline of boxing and that's mma and ufc related yes. obviously mm-hmm. um those have certainly caught on because you know many many people know who conor mcgregor is uh again in the wider world um i you know i would argue that you know dana white people know him from the ufc in the same way that they used to talk about don king in in the world of boxing and and obviously one of the things and this i think speaks to your exact point one of the things the ufc has done for better and worse and there are a lot of debates around this is they own it they have mm-hmm. the talent they control everything around it so there's no room to be like well but that's the other thing or this is the other thing mm-hmm. even the professional fighters league and, and we had their ceo on uh, on this program not too long ago you know it's run it's a tight ship it's the second most uh, popular mma uh venue or, or organization i should say behind the ufc so they've learned something about kind of locking up the intellectual property um, and and kind of having the athletes in in the way the fighters in this case uh, in where they want them uh, and and so there's there's less room for uh, variation. Without question, they are the the Friday night fights used to be the the thing to watch every and then Wide World of Sports you'd watch everything and now this Generation Z right now is locked into MMA UFC without question and it's never I don't think it's going to go back to boxing I think they love the action on this they can bet on this they can sit ringside and it's, it has a little bit of a, a gladiator tinge to it yeah. a little bit while watching it and uh, I think it's gone this generation will never come back to boxing ever. All right. Well, you've been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. Find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News.
And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at Lynchy WCVB. And we're here with you each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday talking about the world of money and sports. It's an exciting week we've got coming up. As I mentioned earlier, going to catch up with Nina King, the new athletic director down at Duke. We're also going to catch up with Scott O'Neill. He is the CEO of Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment, of course, the owners of the 76ers and the New Jersey Devils and the Crystal Palace Football Club. So he's going to have a lot to say about the state of sports. You're listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.